Good morning, Faith Bible Fellowship Church family. We are saddened that we are not able to join you guys this morning for worship, but we are grateful that we are feeling healthy. Everyone here in the Vargas household is feeling good. We're feeling healthy, and our hope and prayer is that we will be back with you guys to join you guys in worshiping our Lord and Savior together next week. But we will continue on today, and we will be in the book of 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, as we have been in John for the past five weeks, but we've been specifically in chapter 2 for the past two weeks, and Wes has really taken us through the first 11 verses here in chapter 2, and what we've seen is that really John is giving his readers this litmus test of sorts, or, or an assessment, as Pastor Wes puts it, on what it feels like or or what life for a genuine believer someone in in genuine faith should look like according to the scriptures and we see that john really has given the church two different litmus tests so far right with the first pertaining to the personal holiness or or a moral test that really leads to this questions about our true obedience to god and we see this really in first john chapter chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandment. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And that is the first litmus test. It's a test of, of personal holiness, of, of, of our true obedience to God. And the second one, as we looked at last week, is a social test of sorts. It's referring to our love for other believers. And whether we have genuine love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that in verses 9 and 10 here of John chapter 2. Where he says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So what we see here is that John has given them two litmus tests, and he gives them a third, and we'll see that when we reach chapter, I mean, verse 18 and 27 here, and that's known as the doctrinal test, you know, their, their genuine belief. But we see that John, in the middle of these three, really, the assessments that John gives us, right, if you take, if you take um, verse 18 as one of these tests too, then he kind of takes a break in the middle here to really address the believers and, and, and to encourage them and, and we see that really that this is what he's doing here by the way that John starts writing or addressing his audience he switches his style up very briefly that's because the focus shifts just a little bit as well where he instead of giving them this assessment now John wants to encourage them he wants to reassure them that you have genuine faith and like I said he does that by trying to encourage them and we see this shift in the way that John writes and it goes more he gets repetitive right I am writing to you I am writing to you I am writing to you he repeats that three times and he says I write to you and he repeats that two other times and then he's specific on the group that he's addressing little children children and he's addressing fathers and young ones and he gets this repetitive nature and it's really it's quasi poetic in the way that John just shifts here a little bit 
and he wants to encourage them and his writing changes a little bit and we see that this was intentional. So why the switch? As we understand that John had a very pastoral heart. He loved his audience. He loved the people of the church and he cared deeply for them and he understood that after two, after writing all of what he written and after we see what we see in verse one and the, these assessments that he gives them here in verse in chapter two, he comes to understanding that there perhaps there's people now who are questioning their faith, those who he did not intend for them to question their faith. Right? He has an intended audience here in chapter one of those he's addressing, right? So he doesn't want those who have genuine faith to start thinking that they don't. Because that's the tendency here is, is that he can understand how someone would look and be like, well, well, I've lied in the past. Or, or you know, I don't really have, I don't love all my brothers and sisters. I don't particularly care to be in the presence of this person or that person. Am, am, do I not have genuine faith? Am, not, am I not really in Christ? Am I not a genuine believer? And so to address those issues, to make sure that people aren't nitpicking and making sure that, that people understand that, yes, you do have genuine faith. John switches here to encourage them. And he really gives them five or six or however you want to break it up, different types of encouragement in just these three verses. And so I want to look at that and see how we can be encouraged and what this tells us on how we should be living our Christian life, how we should be living our relationship with God now. So the main idea, what we'll be looking at and dealing with today is this, is as Christians, we need to know where we stand before God and we need to have a right understanding of who God is. And we need to understand that we have been given the strength to overcome the enemy. I'll say that again. As Christians, we need to know where we stand before God. We need to have a right understanding of God. And we need to understand that we have been given the strength to overcome the enemy. We'll be, as I said earlier, in verses 12 and 14 here in 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, please turn to me as we look at the scriptures. And John writes, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we've been able to gather with the saints once again, Father. And we thank you for the truths that we find in scripture. That you are a good and loving God who sent his son to die for his children. And we thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you bless this time together, Lord. We ask that as we dive into your scriptures, that your word, that your word becomes the lamp to our feet, Father God. Give us the strength to walk in the truths of your scripture, Father. And bless this time together, Lord. May we leave today 
change when you leave knowing a little bit more about you, understanding more about your truths. And may we walk in your truths, Father God. Bless this time together. Eliminate any distractions, Lord, and just bless this time. May we just leave changed and grow more in our understanding of who you are, Lord. Bless this time together. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be edifying to this people, Lord. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name. Now, I would like to spend a little bit of time looking at the mechanics of these verses. Because it's while it is interesting, and there is a lot there that we that we can try to understand, having but having a better understanding of these mechanics, of the different debates on where different scholars land really doesn't add to what Paul what, what John is trying to say here. So I'd like to just spend a little time and, and let you guys know that there is some debate why John does take some some liberties here when he writes why he he is writing in different tenses when he says I am writing to you I am writing to you I'm writing to you then he switches to I written to you or I write to you and some believe that John when he switches when he when he switches to I write to you what he's talking about is his past a past writing whether it's something that he's written whether it's an epistle that we no longer had whether he's referencing his gospel or whether he's just talking about what he's written already so far in the first 11 verses here, right? And so there's different debates on why he switches the tenses and the significance of that. But I don't think having a better understanding of that really is going to add much to what we are trying to gather out of this today. There's other debates surrounding around how many groups is John addressing? Is he just addressing one large group? Is it two groups? Is it three or is it four when he says, I am writing to you children, or I am writing to young men, or I am writing to you fathers, is he mean by these, is he addressing these people by chronological age, by little children, or, or by young adults, and, and by the people from the older generation? Or is he talking about spiritual maturity? And like I said, like this, that's all interesting. And, and it's really good readings. But it does not add to the purpose on why John takes this time out now to encourage his believers, encourage his audience. I think if we spend too much time focusing on these details, we lose sight of what John is trying to accomplish here. Right? So what I will say is that I do believe that John is addressing the church in general. Like the every single believer in the audience. And he does this by saying here in verse 12, I am writing to you little children. And this little children, this, this word that we find here, it's very similar. It's the same word that we see at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so when he says, my little children, I believe John is addressing all of the believers. Right, not li not specifically little children of age, but all the believers, because that's the thing. That's how we've seen him right in this in in this chapter before. When he says in chapter in verse one, my little children, he's addressing everyone. He's not just warning. He's not just trying to 
tell just the little children not to sin, but it's a calling for all of us. And you see him use the same addressing here in, in verse 18, where he says, Children, it is the, the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. When he gives this warning, he's talking to the church, not just the little children of age in the church, but the whole church. And he does it again in verse 28 here in, um, in chapter chapter 2, where he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, he may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. When he says here, all throughout the New, all throughout this epistle, when he says little children, he's referring to the whole church. And so that's who I think John is addressing here. And he splits them up in two different categories, young young people, young ones, and the older generation. He does that because he's really trying to show this emphasis that it's everyone. Listen up, he says, listen up, church. The young ones, the older ones, and everywhere in between. This is all for you. And so this is really all that we see John writing in verse 12 through 14 here in, in, in the second chapter of 1 John, it's true of everyone, right? Because it's the truth is that all Christians' sins have been forgiven. All Christians should strive to have a deeper understanding and intimate relationship with God. All Christians have been given the strength to overcome the enemy. That's not just true of just one age group. It's not just true of some. That's true of all believers. So don't tune out when John says, I write to you fathers and think, well, I'm not a father or I'm not that old or or I'm, I'm, I'm just a woman. Like, Don't tune that out because John is talking to you. And the same is true when he's addressing the young ones or if you read little children and you think he's talking about children. It's true of all of us. And that's how I would like to tackle these, these, these next these verses, that it's true of all all believers. And this leads me to my first point. We must be confident that our sins have been forgiven. We must walk in that truth. We must understand that this is what the scriptures tell us. We get this from verse 12 and 13c. It says when he he says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesakes. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. We must walk according to the truth that our sins have been forgiven. This verb here that, that we see used here in the Greek, for your sins are forgiven or, or your sins have been forgiven, as it says in the NASB, this verb is in the perfect tense. So this what that means is that it indicates the continuation and present state of a completed past action. So in other words, something that was true in the past is true now and will continue to be true. And in this sense, we're talking about our sins being forgiven, that they were true at the moment where we accepted Christ and we came to know him as a Lord and Savior. And we put our faith and we put our trust in him and we repented of our former life. At that moment, our sins were forgiven. And that was true then. And we stand today with our sins forgiven. And we will stand tomorrow. We will stand before God in eternity with our sins forgiven. John Painter writes it this way, that they have been, in court, our sins, that they have been forgiven and are therefore forgiven. 
There is no if, and, or buts. There is no, you don't add to that. They are forgiven and therefore forgiven. The end of the conversation. Or perhaps you like how David Allen puts in his commentary. Our sins have been once and for all forgiven and will never be brought up before God again. That is the truth that we need to walk in, church. That's what we have to be confident in. Because when we're confident in that, when we understand our standing before a perfect and holy and righteous God, it will affect the way that we live our lives here on earth. Douglas Sean O'Donnell calls this forensic forgiveness, right? That it's based on Christ's finished work on the cross. That we are rendered not guilty before God for past, present, and future sins. And so we have to understand that about our sins, church. We have to stand firm in that. We have to accept that truth for ourselves because that's what the scriptures tell us. And oftentimes Satan lies to us and we think that we haven't earned salvation because of something we did. Or God can't possibly forgive me. I'm a really bad person. But the scriptures tells us that our sins have been forgiven. Right? That the record from your previous life has been expunged. And no matter how, no matter what kind of lies are told to you, no matter how you may feel that day, we must walk in that truth that our sins have been forgiven. Listen, there is no time limit on our salvation. There is no expiration date on our salvation. It doesn't run out. It's been true since the moment we've repented and it's going to continue to be true no matter what we say, no matter what we do, and we must walk in that truth. So you may ask, well, how can this be? How how do I know that this is true? Well, John gives us the answer here at the end of verse 12. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That it is the work of Jesus Christ. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And it is the work of Jesus Christ in which we have been forgiven. That is how we have been given salvation. It is through the name of Jesus Christ. We see this all throughout the scriptures, right? Jesus says this. And right before he ascends up to heaven after his resurrection, he says as he's addressing his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin shall be proclaimed in his name to all nations that you have been forgiven that that's what we need to proclaim that God that we have been given forgiveness for our sins because of the name of Jesus Christ Peter knew this in his sermon at Pentecost when he says here in Acts 2:32 repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, that he understands that the forgiveness that we are given is not based on our own worth, it's not based on our own merit, it's not based on how well you pray or how often you read the Bible or how many Christian friends you have or whether you listen to the right stuff or whether you watch the right types of movie. That doesn't earn you salvation, church. It is the name of Jesus Christ. It is his work on the cross it is his death and his resurrection that grants us that gives us the forgiveness that we have Peter 
scripture says here in Acts 2, that Peter again in Acts 10, 43 says, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So we have to walk according to that truth. We must, we must be confident in that. If we don't walk according to that truth, then you're setting yourself up for failure. We have to understand that that's what the scriptures teach us and that's what is true. Like I've said, it does not depend on you. Our salvation is not dependent on anyone else but Jesus Christ. And when we don't walk according to that, when we don't walk according to that truth, what we're really saying is that the sacrifice of Christ is not sufficient enough for us, right? What we're saying is that God's plan that he's had in place since the beginning of time is not true, is not sufficient for us. And so we have to, a church, we have to be confident and we have to walk in that confidence that our sins have been forgiven. And this is also true because we know him as our father. We'll see that in, at the end of verse 13. I write to you, children, because you know the father. Your sins are, are have been forgiven because you know the father. You know God as a father figure in your life because that's what happens at the moment of repentance. That's what happens when we put our trust in him. John Stott says, to know the Father, the way that John's talking about here at the end of verse 13, is to know God as their Father. That's what he means, that believers know him as Father. That means that you know God as your Father. Gary Burge puts it this way, that this is the natural result of the redemption and renewal. Free from sin, they have been given a new consciousness of God's intimate fatherhood over them. Therefore, church, be encouraged. Because you know God as your father. Your sins have been forgiven according to the name of Jesus and his work and his personhood and all that encompasses it. You have been given, you have been forgiven of your sins. And that was true of the past. It's true today and it will continue to be true tomorrow. My second point here is, we must become firm in our understanding of who God is. In other words, we have to grow in our intimate knowledge of who God is. Right? We have we know him as a father and we grow in our understanding of him. That happens with time. That happens because we study the scriptures. We seek to understand him. We walk with him and our life, our experiences tell us that he is a good God, that he is a loving God, and we walk according to that. We see this in verse 13a and 14a. Well, John says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. He repeats it twice. He says it in 13a and he says it again in 14a. And like I said earlier, when he says fathers here, he's talking of the older generation. It's a term of respect. That's how we see it used in Acts by Stephen and Paul here in Acts 7. And again by Paul in Acts 22. That it's a, it's a term of, of respect for the elders for the older generation in the church. And so that's what he's talking about. And so we can learn from that and understand what he's saying is that you have known him. 
that you've grown in him. Not only did you know him in the past when you repented of your sins, but you've continued to continuously know him all throughout your life. It's just not talking about a mere intellectual knowledge of God, because all believers have that. Whether you've been in the faith for five minutes or whether you've been in the faith for 50 years, you know him, right? What John is talking about here is this continual growing in the knowledge of God and understanding of who God is through just simply living life with God. That's the Greek word here, to know. It's in that perfect tense. We've talked about that with our sins have been forgiven. It shows up again here. And, and when he addresses the older generation, and that you have come to know him. from You know who him who is from the beginning. In other words, as, as Stephen Smalley puts it, it's this suggests, this type of know that, Paul, that John is talking about here, suggests a past knowledge that remains and grows. It refers to an established relationship with God in Jesus that continues to develop in the present. That's what John is talking about. Is that you you write to your father because you know him who is from the beginning. You have had this intimate personal relationship with God, with Jesus Christ from the moment you've repented and you've grown on that. And you need to understand that that's an encouragement. That you have not left the faith, but that you are continuously growing in your knowledge and understanding of who God is. John here is speaking through knowledge, to a knowledge that only comes from being in an authentic relationship with Christ. Right. As, as, as Stephen Smalley puts it later on, it's from a matter of spiritual relationship that is historically grounded and not based on intellectual speculation. That's what he means by to know him who is from the beginning. To have an intimate and factual grounded relationship with the God of the universe. It grows over time. And John is trying to encourage his believers of that here. That you know him from the beginning. That you have continuously grown in your knowledge and understanding of who God is. Briefly, who, what does he mean when he says who, him who is from the beginning? I believe that he's just talking personally about the Godhead. That you know God the Father, and you've known Jesus the Son, and you've come to grow in that knowledge, right? And and we see this because that's what John, how, that's how he uses this, right? He uses it in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, it was not anything made that was made. And we've come to understand that what John is speaking of to there is Jesus Christ, that he was with God from the beginning. So God has always been. And then John tells us in John 1, he also tells us in 1 John 1, 1, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. We understand 
that for John, when he writes this way, he's speaking to Jesus Christ and he's telling his readers that God has always been and that Jesus Christ has always been from the beginning. And so when he writes this, he's talking of the Godhead. So he's referring to both God the Father and the Son. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The knowledge that John talks about, it is a knowledge of the Father and a likewise a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know him in person, to know his work for us, to know him in his offices as a sin bearer, as the sacrifice, as the prophet, priest, and king. That's what it means to know him who is from the beginning. It's to fully comprehend who God is. And we have to walk in that understanding. We have to walk according to what we know of God. And what we know of it is we learn that from the scriptures. The more we meditate on the scriptures, the more that we study it and read it and, and memorize it and, and, and talk about it with other believers. And the more that we're in community, and the more that we walk with God, we grow in our understanding of him and we live and we stand in that if you do this, it will affect the way you live your life. That when you know that God is good, when you've experienced the good of God, the goodness of God, no matter what life throws your way, you understand that God is good. When life is difficult and you question God's love for you, but then you realize how long you've been walking with God and you realize the truth that is in scriptures and that's what you lean on, not on your own understanding, but on what the scriptures say of God. When we do that, we walk in our knowledge of who God is and we have a firm understanding of who he is. We walk with God and then we are given the strength to, that we need to overcome the enemy. And that leads me to my third and final point. We must abide in the word of God in order to grow in strength and overcome the enemy. I'll say that one more time. We must abide in the word of God in order to grow in strength and overcome the enemy. We see this here. With John writes in verse 13b and 14b. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He repeats himself there at the end. So first, I want us to understand this, that there is still work to be done. That we can stand and we need to stand in the truth that our sins have been forgiven. And we have to lean on our understanding of who God is. And understand that we have been given the strength to overcome the enemy because we are still in a battle. We are still in a fight. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, put on the whole armor of God. Why? that you may be able to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. It goes on, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We, listen family, we are still in a battle. We are still fighting. And so we must remain strong. And the strength that John talks about here when he says 
thing. All right, you young men, because you are strong. This isn't just, this isn't a physical strength, even though he could mean that. He's not talking about the physicality. He's talking about this spiritual strength, that you are spiritually strong, but not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. Understand this, that sandwich between you are strong and sandwich between you have overcome the evil one is this truth that we must abide in the word of God. What does he say? He says you are strong and you have overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in you. That's the, we, the strength we have doesn't come from our own understanding. It comes from the fact that we remain rooted in the word of God. That is why we're victorious. Is that because we remain in Jesus. So who does John talk about when he says, Abide, the word of God abides in you. Really what I think what John is talking about is just the totality of the knowledge of scripture, the totality of the truth that we find in the scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament commandments and the Old Testament scripture, and he's talking about the actual teachings of Jesus. That's what he means by the word of God abides in you. And he's also talking about the gospel, the truth, the message that we've been given, that Christ came down from his heavenly realm, came and lived this on this earth, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that was ours, and then rose again three days later. That truth that we find in the scriptures, that's the truth that must abide and must remain in us. You see this, and really in, in, in 1 John 2, verse 24, where he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That we have to let the truths of Scripture abide in us. We must remain in us and understand that the Word of God is our offensive weapon. That it's what gives us the strength and it's the tool that we use to overcome the enemy. It's Ephesians 6.17 there. So understand this, if you abide in the word of God, or if the word of God abides in you, then you are strong, then you are overcome the enemy, or you have overcome the evil one, because the word of God abides in you, and the more that you study the scriptures, the more that you read and you meditate on the scriptures, the more that you will see the true nature of sin, and the more you will learn to hate that you, the more you learn to hate sin, it only comes from abiding in the word of God. So we have to remain firm in our understanding of who God is, that we have been forgiven all of our sins, our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins have been forgiven in the name of Jesus and because we abide or we remain in that truth, and the word of God abides in us, then we are given the strength to overcome the evil one. Closing. 
in closing, I want to just address those here who perhaps you don't know. Perhaps you're seeking or you have some more questions and, and you're not quite sure where you fall. You don't know if, if you truly believe in God or perhaps you felt like you've said a prayer in the past, but you, you, you haven't quite been living that way. And you may be thinking, well, how do I get there? How do I have this assurance to know that my sins have been forgiven? Well, first and foremost, you have to look at the truth of God, truth of Jesus Christ in scriptures. And you have to understand that he came and he lived the life that you can't. You have to understand that no matter how good you may feel, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's everyone. Myself, Pastor West, that person in your mind who you think is the best person in the world, who does no, who does no wrong, they have fallen short and have sinned against God. And so once you realize that, that everyone, no matter who they are, no matter what kind of lifestyle they live, have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned against Him, then you have to understand that we have been offered this forgiveness because of the life that Jesus Christ lived, that he came and lived the perfect life, never sinning, following all the commands of God, and then dying an innocent man, dying as an innocent man on that cross. And what happens is that then our sins are laid on his shoulders on that cross. And it's our sins, it's your sin, it's my sin that holds him there. But he just doesn't die. He raises again three days later. And that is where we get forgiveness. If you respond to that by repenting and putting your trust in God, then you can have that assurance today that your sins have been forgiven. And if you're interested in that or you want to know more about that, talk to myself. Reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor Wes or one of the elders or, or one of the leaders here. We would love to dialogue with you. We would love to talk to you more about what that means and what that looks like for us as Christians to walk according to the ways of God, to trust in his work, atoning work on the cross. And to the believer, understand this. Satan will attack you. And he usually does this in two ways, right? He accuses you, right? So he, 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 he deceives you and he accuses you of, of, of wrongdoing. And we have to understand that when he does that, and that when we start to doubt our salvation, we have to stand firm in the fact that our sins have been forgiven. That the moment where we repented of our sins and trusted in Christ Jesus, we were forgiven. And that at that time, God, the creator of the universe, saw everything and knows everything and still gave us that forgiveness that we did not deserve or that we did not earn, but because his son died on the cross for us. So you understand that he accuses us and that he will tempt you, right? Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. We see that in the Gospels. We see that all throughout Paul's writing that he says, and he warns the church in his writings, Paul does, of Satan tempting them. We see that in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. We see it again in, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. That, that he tempts you. That he comes and he accuses and he tempts the church. 
we try to deceive you that there is going to become all types of new ways to think or new philosophies or new truths according to how we feel or what we may, may think. So he attempts to pull you away from God. And we have to understand that both of those are addressed by the work of Jesus Christ. That, G, that, that, the, uh, that the attacks of Satan are indeed addressed by the work of Jesus Christ. That his work, atoning work on the cross, has given us, has earned us forgiveness. And that does not depend on us. We don't lose that. That's all that's going to be true always. And no matter what Satan will tell you, you must remain in that truth. That God has forgiven you and that he will forgive you. The way we overcome the temptations of Satan is to abide in the word of God. When you do that, you are made strong and you are given what you need to defeat and overcome the evil one. And by remaining in God and abiding in his word, he can ward off the evil one's attempts to tempt you. I'd like to end. Quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes, Christians know their sins are forgiven, not because they bank loosely and vaguely upon the Lord God, still less because they rest upon the hope of their own God, their own good lives and merits of their own good works, but because of the perfect, the finished, the full work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We are forgiven because Christ has gone before us and he has earned that salvation that we have before us. Walk in that truth. Trust God. Trust in his promises. Walk according to the truths of scriptures and you will be given the strength to overcome the enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, Lord. We know that we can't do this on our own. We know that there's nothing that we can do that will give us the salvation that we already have, Father. Help us to live according to your word. Help us. Give us the strength. Give us the wisdom. Give us the knowledge to know who you are, Father. To know the truth of the scriptures. To walk and stand firm according to that, Father God. Lord, thank you. We praise you for that, Lord. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are. And live our lives according to your word. Give us the strength to live, with, live according to that today, Lord. May we remain in you today. May we take this day, this Lord's day, to grow in our understanding of who you are, Lord. To spend extra time in prayer. To spend more time reading your word. To spend more time in fellowship with the saints. May we overcome the enemy by abiding in you and in your word. We pray all this in your son's mighty and powerful name.